Good morning. We're going to be continuing in our study today called Focus, and our focus um, that we'll be looking at today is focusing on the Bible, which is uh, fundamental to uh, the Christian worldview and uh, fundamental to the Christian life. Uh, but first things first, happy Father's Day, guys. Not a whole lot of guys in here. We can count them on one hand, uh, maybe two, but uh, happy Father's Day. I kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, having two kids, uh, I, I get to celebrate Father's Day and be the recipient of, of their love on, on Father's Day, but my birthday happens to fall on the same week. So uh, this has been like my favorite week of the year, and it always is every year. I, I love this week. Um, well, you know, for my birthday this past week, what my wife and I decided to do, uh, well, we, we wanted to spend the whole day working in the garden, uh, or I, that was my idea of a perfect birthday. Uh, was spending the day uh, finishing up our garden, but uh, for breakfast, uh, we decided that we'd go to one of our favorite places around here uh, for breakfast. That's the Sawmill Cafe over in Mill Creek. And we were thinking back to the first time that we, that we went there. It was when we came here in December, and uh, my, my college roommate, um, who lives in the area, had said, hey, you know, let's, let's meet here at the Sawmill Cafe. And we were thinking, okay, you know, we, we have no idea where Mill Creek or anything is around here. So, uh, so we did what anybody in, their, uh, in, in my generation, I guess, would do. We, we turned on the GPS and said, okay, take us there, right? So, so we're, uh, we started at Craig and Carolyn's house. That's where we were staying when we came out in December. And uh, as we're going down the road, uh, it, it tells us, take a right turn, Take a right turn. Take a right turn. And it does like six or seven of these in a row. And I'm thinking, you know, there are only so many right turns you can take before you're right back where you started. But it, it eventually got us there. It was actually kind of like a maze, like it goes in toward the middle or, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, we wouldn't have got there without the GPS. And so here we are having breakfast on my birthday. And, uh, you know, I'm telling Christina, you know, what I want to do today is just finish up the garden and, and work in the garden all day. But there are some supplies that we're going to need. And so what do we do? We plug GP, we, we get the GPS out and we say, okay, where's the nearest Home Depot? Because I have no idea. Uh, so we, we, we go in there and we, we say, okay, where's the nearest Home Depot? And it says, you know, turn left here, turn right there. And, you know, I feel like I'm going kind of back the way I came, but before I know it, you know, we're back at Home Depot. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this, this is great. What a great illustration for my sermon this week. And that night, as we're watching the news, they're saying, don't rely on your GPS. Because the guy, <laughs> because the, the news reporter, uh, he's trying to get down to the Space Needle using his GPS, and it's just taking him in circles. And so he says, well, you know, it's only good to a certain extent. But uh, yeah, uh, the GPS has worked fine for me. There have been a couple times when it's failed me, but most of the time... It's, uh, it's great. How convenient is it to have something that I can turn to when I personally have no idea which way to go? Uh, and actually, golfers use something that's, that's kind of similar, but it's, it's more of an old-fashioned type thing. It's called a yardage book. If you guys are at all familiar with golf, and I'm, I'm really not, but I know that golfers, one of the reasons I'm not, uh, I'm not real crazy about golf is because you watch it on TV and they're like, you know, 500 yards away from the hole and they hit it and it goes like over these trees to some place that they can't see and it lands like five yards away from the hole. And I'm like, well, I'll never be able to do that. Because you see that on TV and you're like, that just seems impossible. How do they know where to shoot? Well, in comes the yardage book. What they do is they've played these courses dozens and dozens of times and what they do is they say okay they, they, they write down notes in their yardage book 
And they say, okay, if I shoot toward this specific tree with this specific iron, it'll get me to where I need to go. So it's kind of like uh, just golfing blind in a sense. Uh, Zach Johnson, who's a golfer who won the 2010 Colonial, uh, said of his reliance on his yardage book, he said, quote, I feel naked without it there. Again, how convenient to have something that they can use when they otherwise wouldn't know which way to go. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a GPS or a yardage book for life, for the rough times in life, when you're forced to face reality and you're not sure where to even start? Where do you turn? What do you go to? How do you respond when reality hits and you're not even sure which way's up? It's like emotional vertigo. How do you respond when you get that dreaded call in the middle of the night and you find out that somebody's in the hospital and they're in critical care and it doesn't look good? How do you respond to that? How do you respond when you get your bank statement and you find out that your 401k is now a 101k? How do you respond? You panic. That's that's our first instinct. But what do you turn to? How do you respond when you find out that they're going to be laying people off in the company and before you know it, you get called into the office and you're the next number to be cut from the company? Where do you turn? Where do you turn? The question boils down to this. When the storms of life come, and they will come, and you're caught out in the middle of the seas, what do you use for your compass, for your spiritual compass, to keep you headed in the right direction? What will tell you which way is north when every horizon and up and down, it all looks the same, and you have no idea where to go? When life is falling apart, What's going to hold you together? Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, uh, if I could only have one wish for God's people, it would be that all of us would return to the word of God, that we would realize once and for all that his book has the answers. Now, we talked about some of the statistics last week about how theologically illiterate a lot of the churches in our country are we talked about some of the dangers of being theologically illiterate the consequences of being theologically illiterate can be very steep Uh, there's another study that i want to briefly mention Uh, it was done by the barna research group they're a christian organization that does research on uh, trends within christian circles and so on and so forth and what they did is they found a thousand people who identified themselves as born-again Christians, and they were given this question, what aspect of your spiritual life would you like to improve? How would you guys answer that? Just think about that for a moment silently for a second. What aspect of your spiritual life would you like to improve? Well, the results for somebody like me were shocking. See, I'm the Bible study podcast guy. Uh, I love the Bible, and that would be my answer. I want to spend more time in the Word. But get this, for 18 to 25-year-olds, 3% answered, read the Bible more. That's for 18 to 25-year-olds. That's the the prettiest picture. For 26 to 44-year-olds, 1% answered, read the Bible more. For 45 to 63-year-olds, 1% answered, read the Bible more. And for 64-year-olds and up, less than 1% said, read the Bible more. 
So if somebody were to ask you, why should I read the Bible? What would you say? What would be your response if somebody wanted to know why you read the Bible? And while you're thinking about that for a second, I want to illustrate the point that I'm kind of trying to make here with a story. There's a well-known Christian author who, with her husband, went to visit this man who was dying of cancer. He had terminal cancer. His name was Arlo. He was a self-made, self-sufficient man who had been strong all of his life, and here he was, uh, ready to, to see what happened from there, ready to, to pass on to the next life. And while, while, he, while they were visiting him, they, you know, he told them a story about how when he got married, his grandfather had given him and his wife this beautiful Bible, uh, a, a large print with gold engraving on the front, came in a really nice box, and it was wrapped all nice and everything. And, you know, they, they wrote him the thank you card and all the things that you're supposed to do when you get wedding gifts and everything. But Arlo never opened the Bible, or he, he didn't open it for years. When times would get tough financially, his grandfather would say, open up your Bible. And he's thinking, well, yeah, I, I don't believe in that stuff. And so neither Arlo nor his wife heeded the advice of his grandfather. They didn't open up the Bible. But finally, after many years, he got sick of hearing his grandfather say that every time, and he finally decided, okay, you know, curiosity is getting the best of me. I'm going to open it up and see what it says. And he says, quote, The joke was on me. I finally took that Bible out of the closet, and I found that Granddad had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of every book, over $1,300 in all. And he knew I'd never find it. End quote. When he was thinking, yeah, there's going to be treasure in this, I'm sure that's not exactly what he had in mind. But back to our question, if somebody was to ask you, why do you read your Bible? What would your answer be? How would you respond? Well, hopefully you've still got your Bibles open to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be looking at what the psalmist says about this in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we read, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now I love passages like this, because this is all inclusive. Everybody is in this picture. No matter who you are, no matter what you might know, no matter what your education might be, no matter what you might have done, no matter what you've been through in life, you are somewhere in this picture that the psalmist is making. What we see here is that there are, well, you know, they say that there are three types of people, those who can count and those who can't. But the reality is that there are two types of people. The reality is there are two types of people. Those who meditate in the law of the Lord day and night and those who don't. And what we see here is that a blessed person avoids three things. The first thing that the psalmist tells us is that they avoid the counsel of the wicked. When we're talking about counsel, we're talking about people who are in your ear. People who have the chance to influence the decisions that you make influence the things that you do as you go through life. And the person who is blessed doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. Now, a clarification that we want to make here, by the way, is on the word blessed. See, there are, there are a lot of Hebrew words. There are a few Hebrew words that you can use 
for blessed. Uh, for example, Baruch, uh, that means blessed. When you say, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, blessed is the Lord our God. That's not the word that the psalmist is using here. Instead, he's using the word esher. The word esher uh, really refers to a blessedness as in uh, a happiness, a joyfulness, uh, especially if you are the recipient of something. So that's the word that the, that the psalmist is using here. And in fact, sometimes that word is translated as happy. For example, Job chapter 5, verse 17 says, Behold how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. So the psalmist is telling us is that, uh, is that if you want to be happy, and if you want to stay happy, you will avoid the counsel of ungodly people. That's one of the secrets of happiness. The, the blessed or the, the happy person, secondly, doesn't stand in the path of sinners. That doesn't mean that they aren't around sinners. That's unavoidable. But what that means is that they might be around sinners, but they're not doing what the ungodly people around them are doing. Instead, they're walking on the path of righteousness, which you might say, in, in, in a sense, looks like it runs parallel to the highway to hell during this life, but there's a fork in the road eventually where it becomes very clear that they are not going the same direction. There's a place where the highway to hell heads towards God's wrath and the path of righteousness leads towards God's mercy. So if you want to be happy, you don't get caught on the highway to hell, even if it looks like traffic might be moving a little bit faster over there. It's not. Ultimately, that's not where you want to be. Instead, God's word is going to, to, to uh, lead you on the path of righteousness. Listen to what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 119, verse 1. How blessed, a share, how happy or blessed, are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Of course, where do you find the law of the Lord? You find it in his word. You find it in your Bible. That's where you'll find the law of the Lord. And the psalmist goes on to say in what's actually the longest chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the person who delights in the Lord, who avoids the counsel of the wicked and who stays on the path of righteousness finds that path of righteousness. They're navigated down that path of righteousness by the Bible. The third thing that, this, uh, that the psalmist tells us is that the blessed or the happy person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, in case uh, you didn't notice here, what we see is actually a progression of actions. The person who receives the counsel of the wicked is bound to end up standing in the path of sinners. The person who stands in the path of sinners is going, to be, is going to end up being the type of person who loves their sin so much that they scoff at people who don't participate in that type of sin. You'll hear them say things like, you abstain from what? You know, insert your, your, you know, your biggest sin here. You don't do that? Are you kidding? Everybody's doing that. Well, you're, you're just old-fashioned. You're missing out. And they say this kind of thing because that's the type of person who delights in sin. And the psalmist contrasts the person who delights in sin, who falls into this cycle, 
uh, of, of, del of delighting in sin with the cycle of the blessed or happy person whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. And that person is blessed. That person is happy because that's their source of counsel. That's their ultimate source of counsel. Anything that your friends, whether you, you know, they're, they're godly or ungodly, anything they might say gets judged against what is found in the Bible. It's the source of counsel that keeps us on the path of righteousness. So why should, uh, why should a person read the Bible? Well, a kind of general answer is that it contains all the answers to life's toughest questions. But I'm going to give you a total of four reasons. The first reason to read the Bible is that it's God's revelation to us which navigates us through life's most difficult seasons. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I, I wish that the translators had not used the word inspired there, because that's not what it says. In, in our culture, in, in, in our dialect, when we think of inspired, we think of a poet sitting on you know, the, the beach, and they see this beautiful sunset, and so they get inspired to write something. That's not what Paul's saying here. The Greek word that he uses here, if you were to, to translate it literally, would say God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. So, what that means is, well, have you ever noticed that in order to speak, in order to say anything at all, you have to have access to the air in your lungs. You have to be able to breathe, right? I mean, the person who is choking might have a lot of air in their lungs. They might, they might not. But if they don't have access to it, that's what is causing them to choke. I mean, you can almost picture, uh, you know, like a, a really dry English comedy scenario where somebody says, excuse me, I, I believe I'm choking. Uh, I cannot breathe. What? You can't breathe? No, I really can't breathe. You know, of course, that's silly because nobody can talk if they can't breathe, right? And so thus, uh, all they can do is signal that they, that they can't breathe, that they're choking, and, and ask for help by signals. So what this verse tells us, or what this passage tells us, is that the words that you find in your Bible had the breath of God as the driving force behind them. The breath of God is what drove the, 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 the words to be written down. And it tells us that the person who has been taught, who has been reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness by God's word, by the scriptures, by the Bible, will be equipped for every good work. The things that you do will be good because you won't be receiving the counsel of the wicked. You won't be standing in the path of sinners. And you won't be sitting in the seat of scoffers. So the first reason that I would encourage anybody to read the Bible is because it's God's revelation to us. And it's useful for creating good works in us. For doing good things, for equipping us for good works. The second reason is that it's the foundation for durability in life. It's the foundation for durability through the hardest, most difficult, 
most trying seasons in life. Look at verse 3 in Psalm chapter 1. The psalmist writes, He, that is, the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now one of the new crazes on television uh, that you might find, especially on, on, on cable TV, I guess, but also on just the, the, the major networks, is uh, survival shows. And I happen to love these, these shows. Uh, it, you know, they, they start off um, you know, with whoever being dropped off in the middle of someplace, and what they do is they show you how to survive in a wilderness survival situation. You know, and this, probably, this phenomenon probably started with the show Survivor, where people were pretending like they were surviving out in the wilderness. I mean... They were to an extent, but I mean, these guys are the professionals, and they're showing you how to do it. And one of my favorite survival shows is Dual Survival, and in this show, what you have is you have um, two guys who get dropped off in the middle of nowhere, you know, in, uh, in a desert or in the jungle or wherever, and one of them is this hippie who's lived in the Arizona desert in a cave for 25 years and hasn't worn shoes this entire time. Uh, the other guy is a former sniper with the army who had uh, plenty of military experience or, or uh, action experience in, uh, in Panama. And his experience is really um, with swamp and jungle condition. That's, that's where his uh, area of expertise is. And so you might guess that you know, one guy living, who lives in the desert and he's kind of a hippie and another guy who's really disciplined and you know, has a background in, in the army as a sniper and uh, you know, whose, whose area of expertise is the swamps and the jungles, you'd might, you might guess that they have uh, different ways of doing just about everything. But in the episode a couple weeks ago, they were dropped off in the middle of a desert in Mexico, in the middle of this, this uh, salt lake bed that had dried up. Uh, they get dropped off in the middle of it, and due to the high so uh, salt content in the ground, uh, nothing was around for miles. It was just flat and barren for miles. No plants, no animals could survive there because of all the salt in the soil. And so what did they do? You know, they did what you, know, you would expect anybody to do. They headed toward the edge, and they walked for hours and hours to reach the edge. I mean, this was a, a huge lake. And after hours of walking, finally they reach the edge. And what's the first thing they look for? Water. Water. Because it's hot out there. It's like 100 plus degrees. It's dry. And all these hours they spent walking, they've just been losing body moisture. And so the first thing they look for is water. But how are you going to find water out in the middle of a desert? Well, these guys, despite their differences, know to look for the same things. No matter what, you put, what the weather might look like, if you can find an area of these really big, lush, green trees, that's usually where you're going to find a source of water. Even though nothing around has water, you can always find water in the desert, or almost always find water in the desert, by finding the biggest, lushest trees that you can possibly find. Now, this is also similar to what Israel would have looked like uh, in, in, when this was written. And you can almost imagine that the psalmist is walking through the desert, and he sees these huge, lush, green trees, and he says, that 
is what a person who meditates on God's word is like. That's a perfect illustration, a perfect picture of what the person who studies God's word and meditates on it day and night, that's what they look like. That's the same picture that the psalmist is giving us of a person who studies God's word. The person who delights in studying and learning God's word is like a big lush green tree that's planted next to a source of water in the desert. And there are three benefits that the psalmist tells us to doing this. Number one, it yields fruit. It yields fruit. There's a bumper sticker that says, God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. I would say that's absolutely true. Now, just so we're clear on what it means for a person to bear fruit, uh, when we're talking about bearing fruit in life, it's a term that's used in reference to the things uh, that you do by the power and by the gifting that God has given you. It's the purpose, bearing fruit is the purpose that God had in saving you to begin with. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works is fruit. We were his workmanship created for bearing fruit. So you and I are made to do good works, and God has set these things up in advance for us to do. The truth of the matter is that the things that we're created to do and the things that we do for him, he's actually doing through us. And we shouldn't get the credit because without him, there's nothing that we can do that's pleasing to him. There's nothing that we can do that's really good. One of the most common, or one of the most popular, I should say, uh, commercials of this past Super Bowl, you guys probably saw it because it was a viral hit on the internet before it even got played during the Super Bowl. It was the, the baby Darth Vader who, uh, you guys know which one I'm talking about? It's a Volkswagen commercial, and what they show is this baby Darth Vader, this little kid who's got a Darth Vader helmet on, and he's going around the house trying to act like Darth Vader. Um, And of course, nothing happens. He goes into the utility room, and he waves his hands in front of the washing machine, and you know, nothing happens, and so he's, he's kind of dejected about that. He, he points at the dog like he's trying to do something to the dog, and the dog just kind of like looks at him like, what are you trying to do? Uh, anyway, so finally, the kid goes outside. Dad's come home with, with the Volkswagen, and so baby Darth looks at the car, and he thrusts his hands forward like he's going to do something to the car, and all of a sudden, it starts, and baby Darth he can't believe it. He's like looking around like, whoa, did you guys see what I just did? And of course, then the camera pans over to dad who has this remote that starts the car. (laughs) Now, from baby Darth's perspective, it looked like he was the one who started the car, right? But the reality is that dad started it. And that's the same way it works uh, with God. Uh, We can't do anything. We can't bear any fruit apart from him. It might look like we're doing something, but really it's him. So the first benefit of reading and studying and learning God's word is that it will cause us to bear fruit. The next thing he tells us is that uh, its leaf does not wither. Now there are a lot of things that can cause a tree's leaf to wither, especially in the desert. Uh, when, When a tree's leaves wither, um, it's because the tree is either dying or the tree is going into a dormant stage of hibernation. And either one of those things can very easily and will always cause 
uh, a tree not to bear fruit. So can bugs or weeds. We need to be proactive about removing negative influences in our lives that hinder our spiritual vibrance, our growth in the Lord. The, uh, the root that we have might be strong, but what good is a tree that doesn't bear fruit due to negative conditions? In other words, what this is saying, when it says that the leaf does not wither, it means that if you are meditating on God's word day and night, you won't be prone to going through seasons or cycles of bearing fruit, or sometimes you feel really vibrant in your spiritual life, sometimes you won't. That's what it means for the leaf to wither. D.L. Moody, uh, one of the greatest... uh, pastors and thinkers and theologians of the past couple hundred years, he said this, he said, all the Lord's trees are evergreens. We know a thing or two about evergreens up here, right? The evergreen state. Yeah, that's the picture of somebody who meditates on God's word day and night. They don't go in and out of season. So in other words, even though you are secure in your relationship with the Lord, let's face it, sometimes we just don't feel like we have the ability to be fruitful. The reality is that there are things in our lives, things that the enemy has thrown in front of us, that could very easily hinder our growth, hinder our spiritual vibrancy in the Lord. And those things are like weeds that steal the water, that want to steal the water before that water, that nourishment, has a chance to get to our roots. So we need to identify what those weeds might be and pull them while they're small. Listen to what Peter said. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He writes, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, the Bible, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So just like a baby needs milk for physical sustenance and nutrition, we need God's Word for spiritual nourishment and spiritual sustenance. Now let's be honest with ourselves for a second here and think and ask ourselves, what might be getting in the way of me being more devoted to God's Word, to studying God's Word and finding out more about God by reading His Word? For some of us, it might be major things. For some of us, it might be minor things. It'll it'll vary from, from person to person, but... I'm sure that if we really thought about it, we could come up with a list of things that are hindering our growth, that are causing at least some of those leaves to wither. They might seem small or insignificant now, but it always starts somewhere. And if there's a condition that's causing you to lose focus on studying God's Word, that condition is not going to go away on its own. It's not going to get smaller on its own. So the first benefit of of meditating on God's Word is that you'll bear fruit. The second benefit is that you'll be full of vibrant spiritual life. You won't go in and out of season in your spiritual life. The third thing the psalmist tells us is in whatever he does, he prospers. Now I would warn anyone against misinterpreting this verse uh, to mean that he's talking about finances. The psalmist is not talking about money. He's not talking about financially prospering. No, he's saying that if you are 
reading God's Word and meditating on it day and night, you'll be growing in your walk, in your relationship with Jesus. You'll improve. You'll get better at it. You'll become more and more like Jesus. And what you set out to do, by His power, by His grace, you will be more effective at doing. Not because you've gotten better at it, but because you've gotten better at letting God do His work through you. You've learned how to just get out of the way when God is trying to do something through you. And friends, that is the true secret of happiness. The person who learns to let go and let God, as they say, is a happy, blessed person. Because true happiness does not, and it never has, flown or, uh, flowed out of our circumstances in life. The circumstances in life come and go. God's word is forever. So to review, the reasons for a person to read the Bible are, number one, it's God's revelation to us, which navigates us through the toughest seasons of life. Number two, it's the foundation for durability in our lives, and it's also the the spiritual sustenance that we need. And those are some great reasons to be getting ourselves immersed in God's Word, but I briefly want to look at one more reason, and that is number three, the third reason to read the Bible is it's true. It's the truth. Listen to what Jesus says when he's praying his final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 14 to 17, Jesus says to the Father, I have given them, speaking of the disciples, his followers, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the third reason to read it is because it's it's the truth. Four simple words, each with just one syllable. Your word is truth. That forms the basis for us trusting what our Bibles say. It's reliable because it's true. That doesn't mean that you'll always understand exactly why it says what it says. There might be some things in there that will just throw you for a loop. But it'll tell you that you can trust God anyway. And that He's in control. And that He's sovereign. You know, just like with my GPS, I might not have any idea where it's taking me. It might tell me to be taking six or seven right turns in a row and I'm thinking, this thing's just bringing me in a square. But if I just follow it, if I just follow it, even though I might not understand, I'll get to my destination. And the same is true with the Bible. Oftentimes you'll see the truthfulness of the Bible or the trustworthiness of the Bible in the rear view mirror of life. You won't see it in front of you. You'll see it once you get past it you'll see that you could have trusted it, that you could trust it, because you knew that you wouldn't have made the same decision on your own. Now, how do we know that it's true? That's really one of the questions that our generation is going to be asking. How do we know it's true? You know, maybe it's just true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, it's a a pretty simple uh, formula. Number one, God doesn't err, doesn't make mistakes in anything that he does. Number two, One of the things that God has done 
is breathe through human authors uh, to record his word. And we call this collection of writings the Bible. And so therefore, number three, since God doesn't err, and since God breathed the scriptures, the scriptures don't err. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's overly simplistic because it was still written by human authors. And we all know that people make mistakes, right? I mean, if people make mistakes and God's doing this through people, then, well, you know, how do we know that this isn't full of mistakes? And the answer to that is really pretty simple. People don't always make mistakes. They don't always make mistakes. In fact, if we were to say people always err, you can't say it because you would be in error, error to say that people always err, so it's really a self-defeating statement. It's kind of like if I were to say, everything that I say is false. You might ask, well, is it true that everything that you say is false? Because you just said that everything you said is false, so it must be false that everything you said is false, so everything you say must be true. So you can go around in, a circle, in, in circles with this, right? The fact is you can't say that people always err. Sometimes we err, sometimes we don't. Has anybody uh, here ever used this modern device called the telephone? Show of hands, everybody's used the telephone in here. Has anybody ever gotten connected to the person that you were trying to call? Exactly. Because if you erred in everything that you did, you would never get to the person on the other line, right? So no, people don't always err. So the question then is, how did God give a perfect message through fallible people, through, through people who do make mistakes from time to time. That's also in Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21. Peter says, So we have the prophetic word, the Bible, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, remember that word, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now remember what Peter's background was. Vocationally, he had been what? Anyone? Fisherman, right? He'd been a fisherman. And as such, he had spent a lot of time out on the sea. And because he had spent a lot of time out on open waters and in the seas, he was familiar with a seaman's vocabulary. Now, the word that he uses for moved here is a, a kind of interesting word. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This word moved is an ancient Greek sailing term which described a ship at sea. See, back when when rudders were made of breakable wood and they'd stay in the water a long time, so they would break pretty easily. And sails were made of stuff that, you know, eventually, just like today, sometimes it tears. And once a ship has no sails because they've torn and no rudder, they would say that the ship would be moved by the waves and the currents and the tides. In other words, it's being moved, it's being uh, pushed in a direction by a power outside of itself. And that's the same way that Scripture works. The authors of Scripture were moved by a power outside of themselves in a certain direction. And that's how they recorded God's Word 
perfectly. So God breathed out his words through human authors who used their own style to write out God's truth by God's power. And so thus we can trust that the Bible perfectly records what God wants us to know. So do you want durability in your life? Do you want stability in your life? Do you want direction? There is no other book. You can go through all the self-help sections in the world and you will not find another book that will give you these things. Durability, sustainability, direction, like God's Word can. And I cannot encourage you strongly enough to daily, daily spend some time reading it, studying it, learning it, meditating on it, night and day, all the time. If you've wasted time in your life putting it off because you weren't sure that you could completely trust it, weren't sure that you could benefit from it, you weren't sure that it was completely true, wonder no more. Don't hesitate anymore. God gave it to us. He gave it to you because He wants to speak to you through it and nourish you through it. It's the growth of your, it's the source of your growth and sustenance in Jesus. The more you study it, the more you will understand it. The more you understand it, the more you will be transformed by it. Because this book isn't about information as much as it's about transformation. It will change you. I have to warn you up front, it will change you. The more time you spend in it and the better you come to understand it. And the more you are transformed by it, the more like Jesus you will become. And that is what it's all about. Friends, there are three things, three things that are eternal. Number one is God. Number two is people. Number three is God's word. Those things will never fade away. Those things will never lose power, especially God's word. So what I would encourage you to do is to invest in things that are eternal. Invest in things that are eternal. If you want to focus on things that matter, look no further than your Bible. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it has been preserved through the ages and that we're able to read it today, God. We understand uh, that it's amazing, God, that it has lasted through the ages so flawlessly. And we thank you for it, God. We thank you that it is the source of knowledge of you, of understanding of you, of our spiritual growth and sustenance, God. I pray that you will teach us and give us conviction to study it more often, to thirst for it, God, to crave it, so that we could know you better and so that we could become more like you. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. in the springtime open in bloom is that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky 